0: All right, well, happy Father's Day. If you would, take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 29. I have a Father's Day message for you. We'll call it that. You'll see what I mean. (laughs) There, There is a bit about fatherhood in here in a roundabout way. We are talking about Jacob. We are talking about Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, we're looking at his life, we're looking at how he made a journey of faith, how God is changing the man, Jacob, from being a deceiver, a cheat, into someone who, someone who mirrors God's character and trusts him and believes him as the one who inherits God's promises, Jacob has been sent away from his home to find a wife among his mother, Rebekah's family. That at least is the surface reason he has left home. This is only partially true, though, because Jacob is really fleeing for his life. He has betrayed his brother Esau, he has deceived his father Isaac into getting Esau's Blessing as the firstborn, and Esau has sworn to kill Jacob, and so Jacob is now on the run. He's in exile. On his journey east to find his mother's family, his uncle in particular, Jacob is alone and in crisis, and God meets him on the road. The God of his fathers, Abram, Isaac, had thus far been a tradition to Jacob, handed down, But now Jacob encounters God directly. And the Lord promises Jacob all that he had promised to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, the land, the offspring, the great name, the means of blessing all of humanity. God promises Jacob in the midst of his crisis that he will be with him, that he will not desert him. That wherever Jacob goes, God will go with him. And God promises to bring Jacob back. I will bring you back to the land. Jacob responds in worship and devotion. He sets up a stone. He anoints it with oil. And he says, this is Bethel. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And his life is transformed. His exile becomes a meaningful, sacred pilgrimage. Jacob will not understand this for many years because as you will see today, God's discipline in his life is only just beginning. For Jacob, experiencing God's covenant blessings comes slowly and painfully. As a matter of fact, if you were to read Genesis chapter 29, chapter 30, and 31. And you had not read Genesis chapter 28, where God meets Jacob on the road and reveals himself and promises his presence and promises that he will bring him back to the land. Had you not read Genesis chapter 28, you would think that God has abandoned Jacob, that he has left Jacob to suffer his own devices and schemes. And yet... God stands powerfully, sovereignly behind all of the circumstances of Jacob's exile. For the first 14 years, God is subtly at work. He begins to intervene in the last six years as you see Jacob change. It's these 14 years that we'll be looking at this morning. But Jacob's exile demonstrates How God can fulfill His promises even while disciplining His people. It's the same for you and me. You may face hardship and you may see it as God's hand of discipline in your life, which you should. We're going to talk about that. But at the same time, God is working out His promises for you. Even if you don't feel like it, even if you can't see it happening. God is at work in his discipline. So it was important for the people of Israel, who of course Genesis was written for, they would come back, they would read Genesis, and it was important for them who time after time will undergo God's discipline and wonder how God could ever possibly keep all of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they continue to sin and rebel and commit idolatry and have to undergo God's discipline. And it's important for us because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is our God. And we are his covenant people. And though we have the promises of the gospel, we too will undergo God's work of gracious discipline in our lives. The story of Jacob's exile teaches us to look on God's discipline with courage and not despair. And this morning I want to give you from these chapters in Genesis three reasons to face God's discipline with courage and not despair. Reason number one, God's discipline comes by design. God's discipline comes by design. Look at Genesis chapter 29 verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, "'My brothers, where do you come from?' They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, well, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So as Jacob arrives, he comes across some shepherds tending their flocks, and they are all gathered around a well. Now, in the book of Genesis, wells appear in the story at key scenes to highlight God's providence, to highlight his provision for people. One example is when Abraham's servant goes to find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac, And he prays to God at a well and says, bring the right woman, and here comes Rebekah. And there it is. God has answered his prayer. They're at a well. Another is when Isaac settles his own claim in the land of promise. He digs wells. It's a scene of drama in chapter 26. So this well is a shared well. It's used by uh, several different families or clans. That's who all these different flocks are. And placing a stone over the mouth of a well was a common means of keeping the water clean so that small animals didn't fall in, drown, and contaminate the water. It also kept sheep and people from wandering around and accidentally falling in it and breaking a leg or killing themselves. So this was a common practice to put a stone across the top of it. Now, Jacob arrives, and taking all of this in, he decides to get his bearings. He's arrived in the land, but he's not sure that he has. And so he asks, he inquires, where are you from? Haran, okay, I'm in the right place. Do you know Laban, son of Nehor? Yes, is he well? Is he prospering? Is he in good standing? Yes, and see... Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Here comes his daughter, who was a shepherdess. Now, Jacob asserts himself in verse 7, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. And here's his reasoning. Flocks are usually gathered at the end of the day, not in the middle of the day. Now, they have to be watered. But they would quickly be watered and then taken out, back out and scattered into pasture and then gathered back at the end of the day to go into a fold or some place of safekeeping for the night. And so Jed, that's his reasoning, is why are you all just hanging out here waiting around to water the sheep? I think that Jacob's goal is to get them to open the well and then go, allowing him to have a little bit more of a private, personal audience with his newfound cousin, Rachel, whom he doesn't know yet. But nothing doing, the shepherds reply with a, basically a, nah, we wait till everybody gets here. Then we roll the stone away, which indicates that this is a large well. It has a large stone, which requires a handful of guys to actually move the stone off of the well for them to water the sheep. It's a well co-op. So, verse 9 then, Rachel approaches. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So, Jacob now meets Rachel, and maybe for the first time in the whole Bible story, Jacob displays his real value and his significant strength. If this is a stone that requires a handful of shepherds to roll off the mouth of this well, then what does it tell us about Jacob's physique? Jacob is a strong guy. Esau may have been the hunter, and Jacob may have been the the business manager at home, but Jacob is no slouch when it comes to physical strength. Jacob moves this rock by himself, and then he waters his uncle's sheep. The kiss that he gives to Rachel is not, I don't think at this point, a romantic kiss. Now that's... That's on its way. Jacob is attracted to Rachel, he falls in love with Rachel. But this kiss is he gives because he is overwhelmed with relief and joy at finding his family. Finding someone that he can trust. Someone who's going to provide him with a home and probably a bride. His watering of the flock is a display of loyalty to his family, a willingness to serve his family. His labor is on their behalf, and it shows this commitment to them, something someone else would not have done. Rachel responds the way that she should, verse 13, she runs off and brings Laban and says, I've Found our our lost cousin, Aunt Rebecca's son, Jacob. He's here. He has come. So Jacob has now met Rachel and now enters Laban. He's Rebecca's brother, he's Jacob's uncle, and he is warm and receptive. Our initial impression of Laban is that he's a good guy. This is a good guy. He's welcoming. You are, you are of my bone. You're of my flesh. You are family. And you are welcome here. But Laban will become Jacob's nemesis. We have our main characters now. There is, of course, Jacob. And now we have Rachel, who will become Jacob's love and wife. And we have Laban. Who will become Jacob's father in law and a thorn, an instrument of discipline in Jacob's life? Anything odd, stand out about this account? God is not mentioned, He is not referred to, He is not acknowledged. He is not acknowledged by, in the words of any of the characters in the story. The writer of Genesis does not say anything about God. He seems to be absent. And yet behind all of this is God's sovereign working. The well demonstrates God's sovereign provision. Jacob arrives just at the right time of day to encounter these shepherds who were gathered there and, of course, to be introduced to Rachel. Rachel arrives shortly after Jacob does. He noticed the phrase, while he was still speaking. There's no time gap here. Jacob arrives, he takes in the scene, he talks to the shepherds, and even while he's still talking, Rachel arrives at the well. But what about Laban? He is also providential. Laban is also brought by God. God brings both Rachel and Laban into Jacob's life. Laban is not an accident, he is not an oversight. He is brought there by design. So God's discipline is not contrary to his blessing. God's discipline is part of God's good design to keep his promises in our lives. To bless us. To conform us to his image. It is just the opposite of what many claim for whom discipline and hardship must mean that you are out of favor with God. That you somehow have not exercised enough faith, you have not done enough, you've not accomplished enough, you have not given enough, and therefore you are suffering discipline. For others, God is not sovereign God is a higher being, but he is basically still learning. He loves us greatly, but he is not in charge of the world. Things can still surprise God. And so ultimately, when you face these kinds of hardships, God is is catching up. He can love you, throw his arm around you, and comfort you in the midst of them, but he can't do anything to help you. It certainly is not his design, because we don't like a God who loves us, but that we can't reconcile with suffering. Or some have this idea that God is in charge, but he leaves us to our own choices. Well, you made your bed lie in it, that God will not interfere with our choices, and the consequences that come from them. That is not the biblical view of God. Even this story, God is at work. God is bringing both Rachel, who is blessing, and fulfillment of promise, and Laban, who will be painful for Jacob. God's discipline is by design. Secondly, God's discipline is personally crafted. And by that, I mean that God customizes the discipline that he exercises in your life and mine. Look at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, now Jacob's been there a month. He's been visiting for a month. Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So a month into Jacob's visit, Laban starts to show his true colors. His offer to Jacob here in verse 15 may sound generous to us. I don't want you to work for nothing. But it really is demeaning to Jacob Laban is actually degrading the blood relationship between the two. A family member should work for free. It would have been a higher honor to not have been a hired servant in Laban's household, but to take on some role of labor within his little empire there, his family, his clan, who would have given Jacob authority He should have been provided for. If Laban was really a loving relative, he would have helped Jacob start building his own home, his own family. Instead, he offers him wages for work. He reduces Jacob to nothing more than a contract laborer. And Jacob, accustomed to being on the scheming end of things, is rather undiscerning. He doesn't see through what Laban is doing. He is blinded by something other than money. And this is what their relationship will be for the next 20 years a master oppressing his servant. Now, don't miss Rebecca has two sons Esau and Jacob. Laban has two daughters an older and a younger just as Rebecca has. Leah is unattractive to Jacob. The phrase, her eyes were weak, or literally soft, her eyes were soft, mean that she lacked beauty and luster. Probably it's an expression that just she was overall not attractive. Rachel, on the other hand, was beautiful in form and appearance, so little sister got the good looks in the family. And Jacob loved Rachel. He is not interested in money. Laban says, what will your wages be as you serve me? But Jacob doesn't want wages. He offers to work seven years for her hand in marriage. And so Jacob and Laban form an agreement. And you will notice in verse 19, Laban's side of the contract It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Agreed. Without any details about her, who her is. And Jacob loved Rachel. And so he loves her so much that the seven years of hard labor fly by, which brings us to the sting in the next part. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah Now, can you imagine if you're Jacob? It's a wedding feast. Jacob is probably not in control of all his faculties. He's been drinking. Darkness, bridal veil. Jacob rolls over the next morning. Say, what? Who? Leah? This is his response. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So this is the wedding celebration. This is the wedding reception, food, wine. Jacob is inebriated. And Laban exploits the party, the drink, and the darkness to make the switch. Here's a little healthy dose of irony. The deceiver is deceived. Remember that Jacob's name, Jacob, means heel grabber. So the heel grabber's heel is grabbed. You could say that Jacob has been Jacobed. The word that Jacob uses here is the very word that Esau uses in outrage when he realizes that Jacob has tricked him. He has deceived me. Jacob says, why have you deceived me? Also, notice Laban's explanation. We don't treat the firstborn that way. Well, what has Jacob made a career of doing? Subverting the firstborn, conniving to get his birthright, stealing his blessing. Laban takes on moral indignation. What? How offensive. That's just not done here. Of course, an honest man would have been clear about this from the beginning. But Laban exploits Jacob's love for Rachel and he makes him pay knowing he can get another seven years of servitude out of Jacob. There is a precision with which God addresses sin in our lives. We may not always be aware of what God is working on. You can't always draw a straight line. Oh, I did this, I blew it here, I get it, God is doing this here. Sometimes that's not so obvious to us. I wish it was, I wish it was in my life. I wish I could always draw the dotted line and say, oh, I get it, I blew it over here, and God is doing this now to address this. I don't always get it, and yet God is still doing it. In fact, sometimes people go, what? ask me, what is God teaching you? And I have to honestly say, I have no idea. I feel broken. I know there's, there's pain here, and I know it's discipline in my life. But what is he teaching me? I don't know. As soon as I figure it out, <laughs> as soon as he lets me see, believe me, I will be ready to move on. But God's discipline is always precise. Precise it is customized for you. It is not arbitrary. Laban's deceit is crafted to be precisely what Jacob's faith needs, what Jacob's character needs to rebuke him. God's commitment to blessing us as his people does not ignore our responsibility for sin or our need to change. We still have to be changed. We still have to be transformed. And his discipline is always customized. It is always crafted to be precisely what your faith needs to change and what my faith needs to change, to be refined. Verse 28, Jacob did so, And completed her week. That means that Jacob went ahead with the week-long wedding to Leah celebration. He completed that. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. So the way it works out is Jacob works seven years, he gets tricked by the switch and marries Leah. He doesn't work another seven years and then get to marry Rachel. He goes a week, then gets to marry Rachel, then has to work it off, so to speak. He has to work another seven years. So for the first seven years, Jacob is in love. The time flies by because he loves Rachel. He marries Leah. He marries Rachel. For the second seven years, he has now two wives and the makings of a disaster in his home. I told you it was a Father's Day sermon, didn't I? Sort of. Jacob has been duped. He is the heir of the promises, and he is made the butt of the joke of his own wedding. Once a victimizer, now he is the victim. And still, there is no prayer, there is no seeking of God, there is no request for guidance, there is no confession. It will come, but not yet. Jacob is a man accustomed to relying on his own wits and his schemes. He's used to being in the driver's seat and God is breaking him down. God's discipline is personally crafted. Thirdly, God's discipline is a sign of his faithfulness. God's discipline is a sign of his faithfulness. It's really going to get bad now. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So the Lord enables Leah alone to have children. Jacob rejects Leah. He resents her, which makes her inferior in the home. Whereas she had been the older daughter, she is now placed below on the social scale, below Rachel, because of Jacob's love for Rachel. But often, As is the case, the Lord shows mercy to the outcast and opened her womb. I think we can sympathize with Leah. Every time she conceives, she hopes she can secure Jacob's affections. Now my husband will love me, verse 32. Now this time, my husband will be attached to me, verse 34. And the names she chooses display her perspective in having children. The Lord has heard me, I will praise the Lord. Surely he will be attached to me, that's what Levi means. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. So Leah has the disadvantage of being hated by Jacob, but the Lord chooses to honor her with motherhood first. Rachel has her husband's affections and primacy in the home, but can't have children and faces being displaced from her place of importance in the home, which leads to chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then he said to her, uh, Then she said to him, Here is my servant Bilhah, go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, and that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Judged for me means judged in my favor. Has vindicated me. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Rachel and Leah now contend for children through their handmaids, and there is enough spite and malice and jealousy to make a soap opera look tame. Both sisters want what they cannot have, Leah to be loved and Rachel to have children, By giving Jacob her handmaiden, Bilhah, and her bearing two sons, Rachel feels that she is vindicated and has gained a triumph over her rival sister, Dan, and then Naphtali. I've overcome in this struggle. Somewhere during this time, Leah stops conceiving. And by the way, this is laid out almost like it happened chronologically this way. This is happening on top of itself. All of these sons are being born. Jacob has 12 children within seven years. You do the math. okay? Not satisfied with her four sons, she farms Zilpah out to Jacob, which leads to the births of Gad and Asher and continue her upper hand in the contest. Continues to get ugly. Chapter 30, verse 14. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So uh, so she called his name Issachar and Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So Leah and Rachel now contend for children through mandrakes. I know this is a little bizarre. Mandrake was a fruit. And it was considered an aphrodisiac. It was extremely fragrant. And it was supposed to act kind of like a love potion. And it was supposed to bring fertility, like a fertility drug. So you can see why this mandrake would be very valuable to Rachel. Rachel who is buying into this superstition that it will make her fertile, enable her to conceive. It shows her desperation. So because these mandrakes are very valuable to Rachel, Leah has some real bargaining power and uses them to secure bed rights with Jacob, which shows that Rachel is kind of the gatekeeper of who gets to sleep with Jacob. She's favored and gets to make those decisions. The superstition obviously fails because Leah goes on to have three more children over the next three years, Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah, the only daughter, while Rachel has none until God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. And she gives birth to Joseph, who, of course, we know later in the book of Genesis becomes Jacob's favorite son. Jacob, throughout this, is humiliated as an ineffective leader in an entirely dysfunctional family as he is reduced to a sexual pawn in his wife's rivalry for superiority. And you have to wonder yourself, how does God work in this mess? I don't know. Look at our lives. God works in them. God is fulfilling his purposes. But even Jacob, and this is the low point in Jacob's life. We'll see that next week. This is the low point. He is physically strong and virile. He fathers 12 children in seven years, but he is spiritually impotent. He is addressed once by Rachel Give me children. He is addressed once by Leah, I have hired you. And he is only given one line in this story. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It's his only words in this whole part of the story here. And once again, he continues to be prayerless and detached from God. And this one line shows it. It is theologically correct, isn't it? God is the one who opens and closes the womb. Why are you blaming me? It's theologically correct, but it is shameful neglect of his role as a patriarch and as a father of his family. He is supposed to be a spiritual leader. He is the inheritor of the covenant promises. Listen to what Abraham prays in Genesis chapter 20, verse 17, when Sarah had been barren. Then Abraham prayed to God. God healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Listen to Isaac's prayer in Genesis 25, 21. When Rebecca cannot have children, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. In this story, there's only one person who prays for Rachel, and that's Rachel. She finally cries out, and God hears her. But I want to draw your attention to some things you may not have noticed This last part of this story begins with, He opened her womb in chapter 29, verse 31, and ends in chapter 30, verse 22. God opened her womb. Who's at work here? God is at work. It is God who is opening the womb. Who's in charge? God's in charge. Through all of this malice and all of this dysfunction, The tribes of Israel are born, except for one, Benjamin. He will not be born until later after Jacob returns to the land of promise. But the tribes are being born. God's promise marches onward. God is fulfilling, doing exactly what he has said he will do. And did you notice their names? They reflect not the names of the local gods of the region, the local gods of Laban. They reflect the name of the Lord, the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Leah and Rachel, somehow, in these seven years, show some level of acknowledging Jacob's God. This will become more pronounced in the story as it continues but the names they choose honor the Lord. And think about this. Though marrying Leah is a mistake from Jacob's perspective, that marriage is the product of a deceitful, treacherous act by Laban. It is Leah who gives birth to Judah, from whose line will come David, from whose line will come. Messiah. Who is at work? Who is in charge? I think that it is one of the most difficult things for us to reconcile that God somehow uses our sin and our failings to accomplish his purposes. Even when we understand to the degree that we can, God's sovereignty and his working. We can say, okay, I don't get it, but I know God is working sovereignly. But wait a second. I willfully chose this. In my frailty and in my rebellion and in my selfishness, I did this. I sinned. Because we know Somehow, it's not God's will or desire that we sin. God does not cause us to sin. James chapter 1 is very clear about that. God does not tempt anyone to sin, nor is he tempted by sin. But man is tempted in sin when he is led away by his own lusts. And so we look at that, and we, we, the only conclusion we can come to is that when I sin, when I blow it, I mess up God's plan. Can't do it. No, God does not cause me to sin. God does not lead me into sin. God does not tempt me into sin. But somehow, beyond the reaches of my ability to comprehend God is at work even in my sin and rebellion to accomplish his purposes. So behind it all is God's sovereignty as he faithfully and powerfully works out his promises. Part of which is forming Jacob, the heir of the promises, into a man of faith. It is hard discipline. The key word in these verses today that we've looked at is the word serve. Chapter 29, verse 15, therefore serve me. Verse 18, I will serve you. Verse 20, served. Jacob served seven years. Verse 25, did I not serve with you for Rachel? In verse 27, complete the work of this one. I will give you the other in return for serving. That word in our text, serving, is actually a phrase that uses the word serving twice. Kind of a a serving whereas you serve. He uses it twice. Serving me another seven years. Verse 30 and served Laban for another seven years. Served, 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 served. This means hard labor, and it is hard labor that is done in subjection to another person. It is the same word that Genesis 25:23 uses to describe Esau's destiny. when Esau and Jacob were in the womb, and when they were wrestling. And Rebekah said, what is going on in here? And God speaks an oracle of prophecy and says, there are two nations in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Same word. In Genesis 27, 29, it describes Jacob's destiny when Isaac is giving the blessing to Jacob, whom he thinks is Esau. The blessing goes like this, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And when Esau comes in and he realizes he's been deprived of the blessing and he says, Father, don't you have anything for me? Do you have anything left? Like the scraps of a blessing. Anything that you can give me, kind of almost, he gets an anti-blessing, which includes you shall serve your brother, same word. And here it is repeated seven times in this story, what is God doing? He is refining Jacob's faith through discipline. He is humbling Jacob to become fit to rule his brother in a way that is pleasing to God and write a proper way for the covenant heir. And so over and over and over again, Jacob is made to serve, 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 serve in subjection and humility while at the power, at the mercy of his treacherous uncle. This is, as I said, the low point in Jacob's journey of faith. Now, according to the New Testament, God does this in the life of every person he calls a son or daughter. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This encouragement comes immediately on the heels of the chapter of faith, chapter 11, where all the Old Testament saints, including Jacob, are listed for their faith, presented because of their faith, trust and promises that they couldn't see from a God who spoke them, promised these things. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time. It was temporary as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you notice that word, discipline? Discipline, 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 over and over and over again. Listen, God's discipline is never punitive. It is never punishment. It is always redemptive. It is always redemptive in your life. Now, that's not to say that God does not punish sin and rebellion. He has He does and he will, but never his own children. God does not punish his children, never his own people. For those who belong to him, there is discipline and it is always redemptive. And I say this because of the death of Jesus on the cross. All of God's punishing judgment was rightfully aimed at you and at me. Jesus stepped in between and took the full horrific weight of that punishment on himself. All of it. All of the punishment. That's what he meant when he said, it is finished. I've taken it all. All of the judgment God had to deal out I have taken it on myself. It's finished. So, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you will undergo God's refining discipline. If you don't, you are not his son. You are not his daughter. God's discipline is proof that you belong to him but it is all and only and always redemptive for you who have found refuge in the Savior. You will never know punishment or judgment. You will know discipline. You will know training. But you can look at Jacob's life and you can see God's refining discipline at work and you can face it That discipline with courage and not despair. Because you know that God has purpose in it for you. And it is not punishment or destruction. It is to refine you. It is so that we may share in his holiness.